Thank you for joining us for Church Unscripted this week. Uh, if you haven't yet, we'd love for you to subscribe, like, or hit the notification bell so you can know when the new episodes come up. And if you haven't watched this on a TV yet, that is a great opportunity to watch on a TV and then be able to go through the whole video and be able to see um, the three of us blown up in huge style, like 65 inches. You know, mm, Our heads kidding. are already big know, enough. I know, exactly. I know. Exactly. Well, I have, I have Pastor Eric and Pastor David with me. And Pastor Eric, you preached a sermon this last Sunday, which um, honestly was over one of my favorite passages. And so I'm excited to kind of hear, maybe if someone wasn't there Sunday, can you kind of summarize your sermon for us to kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I sure can. So it was the Luke 22, and this is the story of Jesus um, eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And Mm -hmm. what's significant about this meal is it's the last meal he'll eat with him before he's arrested and then put on a sham trial and then um, accused of whatever and then sentenced to death. And the very next day, uh, within a matter of a few hours, Jesus will die on the cross. And so this is the last meal he'll eat with them. And that's not just significant because it's the last one, but it's it's the meal of the Passover. And so there is so much historical overtones of the Passover that, that has meaning for their lives, but also points them to a future deliverance, which Jesus is suggesting through the Passover meal that he will accomplish on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so the Passover meal, as it celebrates God's faithfulness uh, through the exodus from Egypt 1,400 years earlier, Jesus is redefining the meal to point them forward to the future deliverance of what he will provide on the cross, not from a national oppressor like Egypt or Rome, uh, but from a spiritual oppressor of sin, death, and the grave. And so, um, I mean, we spent, we spent a Sunday on that passage. You could spend months on that passage unpacking all of the spiritual significance. So um, it really was, is what was interesting to me is when Jesus said, and I confer on you a kingdom, I grant you a kingdom just as my father gave me Mm -hmm. a kingdom and what he's referring to is the kingdom of God that is coming as a result of his crucifixion and resurrection Mm -hmm. and so he was training them on how to manage that kingdom well when it's time for them to get it so uh, it was an interesting conversation that um, that led to some some interesting response afterwards but I think it was all good awesome awesome well I, I've been known to start with a hard question, so I am just going to throw it out there. I got I got something as I was listening this yeah. morning, and I'm thinking a lot about judgment and grace and the fact that at the Last Supper, this Passover meal, they're literally seeing the first time that their, their sins are being kind of... Uh, forgiven in like the real sense, like like they ate the bread, they ate the cup, and Jesus is giving them the kingdom, you know, conferring on them the kingdom. So I kept thinking about that, and I, I was thinking about a lot of um, issues in our world that are interact with the kingdom of God. And so um, how, do, how can we reconcile judgment and grace in light of controversial issues in our society? Like what does that look like in our society to reconcile, well, we need to keep the church pure, but then on the other hand, like what does it look like to extend grace to maybe someone that thinks differently than us? So don't compromise the integrity of scripture or the church while at the same time, how do we show the same love and grace that Jesus showed us? Yes, so how, yeah. how do we, so how do we balance the intention? judgment and grace? Because we, yeah. we do need to keep each other accountable, you know, right. but then right. how do we also extend grace? Yeah, um, well, this has been a, um, an interesting conundrum an interesting dilemma as as the culture continues to encroach upon the culture of the church. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's becoming a, an increasingly difficult thing to keep the integrity of scripture alive and maintain um, an influence in the community as the church. And I think the difficulty mm-hmm. is where um, there's less and less a value put on scripture and more and more a value put on personal preference. And so if we have Mm -hmm. somebody who's living a lifestyle or have made decisions that is contrary to scriptural um, um, blueprints and so forth, then then we have to be careful not to allow that to compromise God's perspective and God's prescription and blueprint for whatever that is. But at the same time, we want that person to be very, very clear that we love them as uh, image bearers of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. We want them to be clear that we love them as a person and we want them to be part of this church family because every single one of us has sin or issues in our life that if we let those things flourish and thrive would compromise scripture. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily a pointing outside there to that culture or to that person. Mm-hmm. There's stuff in every one of us that if we let those things flourish will compromise scripture. So um, in a sense, we're all in the same boat to keep mm-hmm. the integrity of the church and scripture intact. Yeah. I think you, it's interesting just looking at this, this passage that Jesus knew Judas would betray him. Yeah. Like he's God. He knew. Yeah. But he still invited him to the table and ate with him even. And then in a way, like lovingly exposed, like, hey, somebody at this table is going to deny me mm-hmm. or betray me. Um, and so he he still ate with him, even mm-hmm. though he knew what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a picture of how we can honestly kind of reconcile those things that you're talking about is, is um still uh, relating with those people, but not accepting their position as, as much. Yeah, Jesus never compromised like right. that. But yet there was nobody who interacted with Jesus that walked away thinking, man, that guy hates me. Mm-hmm. Everybody walked away saying that guy was so kind yeah. and gracious and loving. Mm-hmm. Unless you're one of the Pharisees, then that's a different story, right? <laughs> but anybody he encountered mm-hmm. um, who, who was caught in some kind of a sin yeah. Um, they walked away knowing just how much Jesus loved them while not believing that Jesus condoned the sin itself. Yeah. Well, and I think there, there really is two sides of the coin. That wasn't that wasn't a trick question, but when you're mm-hmm. outside the church and you're a Christian speaking out into the culture, um, I think the response is a little bit different than if you're speaking to someone inside the church yeah. and the expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I mean, I, I think I, whether naturally or uh, just think through this, I'm like, I, I have more grace for people outside the church than I do inside the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where the church sometimes struggles is because we're preaching judgment internally and grace externally. Mm-hmm. And then we struggle with that balance of those two. Mm-hmm. So having a conversation where you're, you're humble, you know, what I heard from both of you is that there's a humility mm-hmm. that has, has to, to be expressed sure. So that's where you get the balance of grace and judgment is like, okay, well, um, that the, whatever that person did, like I'm, I may not be predisposed to that sin, but I still sin. And so I need to, I need to come alongside them and encourage them um, in some way. And when people reject that, that's when things look differently. But um, I think it's, it is sometimes a hard struggle because Christians seem to be the first to say something about what we believe before we even know what the other person believes. And we don't wait and we don't hear their story first. So sometimes there's a balance there. You know, when you're talking about external the church, internal, it seems like we, sometimes it's okay to speak up first 
and it looks different. So um, yeah, I was just thinking about that as like, you're talking about judgment, you're talking about Judas. I got a few questions from people about Judas after the sermon. So, so but we won't get into those because those are tangents, let's just be honest. <laughs> so, but um, how do you navigate the tension? You talked about maintaining the story's integrity. Mm-hmm. You talked about that a lot. Um, how do you, how do you, the, the tension between maintaining the story's integrity and then also allowing for interpretation and adaptation. I'm not saying we change what scripture says. I'm saying, you know, like this is what the story of scripture is, but how does that apply to my life? How that's do I a, interpret oh, that and adapt that? That's a really good question. And thankfully I've been reading through the book of Romans that speaks to this, but l- let me clarify the story that we are called to keep its integrity is the story of Jesus, which is a story of grace and love and redemption mm-hmm. and hope, right? And so if we want to keep the integrity of that story alive, what he's calling us to do is live by those same ethics mm-hmm. and relational um, um, characteristics. So what that means though, is there is room with grace for interpretation Mm -hmm. while not compromising the story itself. So when I'm reading through the book of Romans, I hear the author Paul say, you know what? Some of you feel convicted about eating certain kinds of foods. Some of you say, you know what? I can eat meat and that's totally fine. My faith can still thrive with that. Other people say, you know what? I know where that meat came from. It was sacrificed to idols. I'm not comfortable right now being a follower of Jesus eating that meat. And so here's what Paul says, leave room for grace for each other. Mm. And so if one person says it's fine because I know that that meat was sacrificed to an idol and idols aren't real, they're just fake gods. God made that meat and I can eat it. Mm -hmm. But if the person has a conviction against it, don't say what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a matter of extending that same kind of a grace instead of judgment in terms of condemnation, mm-hmm. uh, but grace in terms of judging the grace that God has put on that person's life. Um, and I think that's part of what it might mean to say, here's how we keep the story's integrity alive, mm-hmm. intact, while at the same time extending that same kind of grace to other people. Is that is that what you were going after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's funny. We were actually we were actually having this conversation in the green room on Sunday during the second service. Um, Somebody brought up the the chosen series, and I think what's interesting about the chosen. I have not personally watched it. I know you have. Have you watched it? I watched some of it. Some of it. But what's interesting about that is is it's it stays true to the narrative of scripture, but it is adding details or perspectives that don't exist in scripture. And we were kind of talking about like how we're almost designed to try to like understand the gaps. And so I think there's a, like the chosen has done a really good job from what I've heard of honoring the story and what we're called to, but also adding some things that help us put the, put scripture into like real life. Because I mean, some people, you know, have really creative minds. And so when they read scripture, they're like, oh, I picture Luke this way. And some people just read Luke and they're like, it's a name on a page. Right. And so something like that gives... Well, this a, is not a screenplay. I right. Mean, it gives but, so, but, that, but like something like The Chosen gives somebody uh, the ability to put a face to Luke, even though it's not the exact face of Luke, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I yeah. think that's mm-hmm. an example of one way that um, we can honor the story, but also kind of see between those things. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, um, I'm, I'm, this is a really important conversation. I just, I think I showed you, I think you were out of the office, but I received a book in the mail and it was, it was do you remember <laughs> I this know book what I showed you? About. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, I didn't ask for it. It was just sent to me. It was somebody who wrote a book up in New Jersey, I think. And 
and he's trying to send it out to as many pastors as he can to get some feedback. Um, and right away, I could tell that there's something suspect about this book. And this book suggests that Jesus was not a Jewish man and his name was not Jesus. It was, it was I think, an African-American female named Yakinsua or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, where, where's he getting this from? Mm. Um, and, and so I started reading through the book a little bit just to get an idea. And my goodness, his theology is so off. I mean, it's, it's taking interpretations that are so out in left field that you can't even support those. Yeah. Um, and he's coming to these conclusions. And, I, and part of what it means for us to keep the integrity of the story of alive or intact is to make sure that our focus is on Jesus as scripture yeah. reveals it, mm-hmm. not allowing some, well, I don't even know where he got this interpretation. But I, I took the book and I threw it yeah. away. Uh, well, so, so it's part so of, it, yeah. Along with that, how do we, because I think there's some stuff out there that, that is close how do we discern like what is true to the to the story and what is not Th- Does this that make this sense? is a great because, conversation i didn't know we would go here yeah but because, i got some because i think oh, yeah. i mean like obviously like some of those are like way out in left field you're like that's not true right but sometimes you'll hear maybe a pastor speak on a topic or read a book and you're like it sounds right yeah but it's not explicitly like how do we how do we Walk through that. That's, oh, I love that question. So, so there's a couple of, of ways to do this. The first one is to make sure that the way that you're interpreting scripture is, is according to the pattern that actually gets you answers. The reality is the Bible was written originally in Greek and in Hebrew, and you have to mm. do the right kind of academic exercise to make sure it's interpreted into English the right way. Now, thankfully, we don't have to reinvent that wheel. There's been a lot of people that have done mm-hmm. that well. So if you're reading a Bible version that is a, a, a fairly accepted version, you're fairly accurate on the core of what scripture's talking about. Now, there's some ancillary things that honestly aren't big deals, but the one thing is to make sure that you're interpreting scripture correctly. The, but the more important thing is this. If we really do have the Holy Spirit in us, scripture is clear that my sheep will know my voice. So if I were to call up my wife on the phone and I would say, hey, and she would respond, I wouldn't say, hey, is Heather there? Because I already well, know her that's voice. That's only unless you had retrograde amnesia, right? So, well, I don't even know what that is. So, <laughs> but that's a whole nother. What he just took it to a cul de sac. Yeah. I don't even know how to get back from this one. So, uh, she would hear. Wait, she would understand. You would hear her name. Oh, yeah. yeah, and then yeah, she yeah. would respond by saying, yeah. "Hey," she would not say, "Yeah, this is Heather. Who is this?" I mean, because we know each other's voice. I mean, the the promise of the New Testament is that if the Holy Spirit's inside you, the more Mm -hmm. you spend time with Jesus, the more clear you're able to hear his voice. So when it comes to things uh, about the story of Jesus that are controversial, perhaps, Mm -hmm. if you can hear his voice through the Holy Spirit, he can lead you into truth. In fact, that's part of what the Bible says is the role of the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. And so when I see this book in my mailbox, Mm that claims that Jesus is not what scripture says he is, mm-hmm. alarm bells are going off in my mind. And as I'm reading it, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, that's not scripture. That's not God. That's not his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, one of the other issues is, you know, what happens when, when a child passes away before they would have the ability of, mm-hmm. of embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior? I mean, people mm-hmm. are like, well, do they, do they go to heaven? They haven't made a profession of faith in Jesus. And my answer to that is based upon how I hear the character and nature of God is, is, is they're with him because he, they have not yet rejected him. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because of his compassionate, gracious nature, he's with them. Mm. So I don't necessarily have to have a specific verse that says, babies who die early go to heaven. 
I don't need that because through the Holy Spirit, I know the heart and mind of God and increasingly do the more I walk with Jesus. Mm. I don't know. Well, yeah. well, I think, I think the, the, the one, the difference between that first example you gave and the second one was, the first one was, okay, I can read the Bible and know it's not what this person's saying it is, right? That's, yeah. that, those are the simple ones. I think the hard ones are when you go, hmm, this author, they put this at a Christian bookstore or they put it this and I don't know if I believe what this person's saying. Like, how, is this, the, I don't know if they're quoting scripture on this. They're just saying this. And I think there's some things that require the discernment of the Holy Spirit a lot more and they tend to be closer to the truth, but not the truth yeah. than the ones that are just out in left field. You know, the ones out in left field, it's like, okay, whatever, you know, like, mm -hmm. okay, uh, Jesus was reincarnated as Gandhi or something. You know, I've heard that before. I'm like, no. <laughs> That's, yeah. that's ridiculous, you know, but I think, I think there are some things, um, and those are the things that tend to be more deceptive. Like if it's something we want to hear, I think when we have ears that, uh, tickling ears, you know, it talks about false teachers, tickling ears. I think that's, um, something to be concerned about, but always it goes back to here, right? I mean, that's really, if it doesn't align with scripture, the other part of it is, I don't know about you guys, but when I read a passage, I could take a verse and if I read a verse and I don't actually read the whole passage, sometimes I don't get the context of what's mm -hmm. being said. So I'm just like, yeah. well, that's a weird verse. Why did Jesus say that? Yeah. Or whatever it is. And then chapter and book. And so it's always important to read a lot of scripture as much as you can. But well, I mean, that, that. that's a question for you. I mean, as a worship leader, mm -hmm. you're bringing into this church body lyrics mm -hmm. that you're mm -hmm. trusting are biblically accurate, mm -hmm. that appropriately honor Jesus. Right. Uh, how do you make sure that those are accurate? Because I'm not assuming, I shouldn't assume that every songwriter out there. Right. Um, that, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you make sure you do that? Because I feel like there's, there's songs written that are true mm -hmm. because of the nature of how s small they are in, in time. You know, mm -hmm. They are true, but maybe the person writing them uh, d doesn't fully understand the truth that they're writing. And so there is some discernment in there too. Um, you mean you're talking about secular artists writing Christian well, not songs or what? Secular artists, but like you know, like um, you know, we talk about you know pastors that that have had moral failings and stuff. Oh, there's yeah. songwriters that have weird theology. There's songwriters that have failed morally. There's yeah. all of these things, and and so one of the things that I've I've really kind of challenge myself with is not to write those off but to look at the song individually and say is it true or is it not and use scripture to i mean if it's not pointing us to jesus then right, right. my goodness it's why yeah. are we singing it and yeah. so i think uh it's kind of the same way just testing it against scripture um and really just kind of allowing the holy spirit to lead in in the songs that we choose mm -hmm. so, absolutely yeah I think, I think when, when, as we who are in leadership at a church, not just on staff, but as elders, we, we have a responsibility to ensure that the church as a whole mm -hmm. is moving in the direction consistent with mm -hmm. the nature and character of God. Right. And we ought to have discernment as part of another benefit of the Holy Spirit is he yeah. gives us discernment right. uh, to see the wolves in sheep's clothing mm -hmm. that would come in and derail mm -hmm. us from uh, true north. Yeah. And so that's, that's a big responsibility to make sure that not just ourselves personally, but the church as a whole is keeping the integrity of Jesus story mm -hmm. intact so that we can protect the kingdom yeah. as we see this culture increasingly encroaching on the kingdom of God, trying to steal territory from it. So yeah. it, it's a big deal. And um, 
I don't know if we always get it right. I, I, would, I would be hard pressed to say that in all the years I've been preaching that I've never said anything wrong or inaccurate. <laughs> uh, that's probably a good I'm, I'm hoping that's well, where I some thought, grace I thought you were going to say, I've never said something offensive. And I'm like, the gospel's offensive. So I'd it's probably say offensive every week. Come on, every come on. Week. That's right. So, so we talked a lot about kingdom on Sunday. Okay. And one of the things I kept thinking about, what, what are you guys' thoughts on the role of, of power and authority in relation to serving others in the kingdom? Because there's like this power and authority that we have that's been conferred on us. And then also, how do we serve others with that? Because, you know, some people don't see power and authority. It's almost the opposite of humility to t- some people. Mm-hmm. So how do we mm-hmm. discuss that in, in serving people? What does I mean, that look like? Jesus had the ultimate power and authority and he came to serve. Mm-hmm. He didn't. Oh, come on. This is not like a <laughs> quick just, answer, hey, man. No, it's not quick answer. It's scripture. It's true. It's, <laughs> the, it's the narrative that we're talking about here. Yeah. But I think that's ultimately, I mean, it, the moment that we take that power and authority and we try to build our own kingdom, then we're missing the actual true gospel that mm-hmm. we have before us. And so I think we have to continue to look to Jesus and say, how did he use his power and authority? Mm-hmm. He, he healed people, okay, but he was never like, he never used it to like lord it over them. Like he could have easily just told Judas to get out mm-hmm. because he knew but he didn't, he had a meal with him and then mm-hmm. let him do his thing. And so I think that's the easy yeah. answer is just to look to Jesus right. and, and how he lived his life. Well, the reason that Jesus I think was so able and willing to serve and surrender and submit to other people mm-hmm. is because he was so mm-hmm. first um, surrendered to God himself, which if you think about it, the surrendering of Jesus, the son of God to God, the father, in contrast to Lucifer or Satan who tried to take mm-hmm. the throne of God, yeah. you can see the complete different personalities and right. characters there. Yeah. And so because Jesus so submitted to God, he was then able to submit to other people and serve them as well. I mean, a, a great example of this and what I was so proud of the elders uh, for last night, which was our fall fest, is, is we saw um, every elder who was in town was at fall fest and they weren't there to say, hey, you need to go do this and you go do that and go bring me my hot mm-hmm. dog. No, they were behind the table serving the hot dogs. Yeah. So, so practically speaking, the most powerful people mm-hmm. in the church yeah. were the ones who were serving everybody else in the church. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I thought that was a really cool picture yeah. of what Jesus-centered servanthood looks well, like. Well, I would even yeah. honor you in that way. After church yesterday, the chairs were gone and you grabbed the vacuum and you vacuum this whole room. Uh, I, no, he didn't. It wasn't a vacuum. It was the Zamboni. Well, Zamboni. Zamboni. <laughs> that, that thing's just it's fun. It's like a lawnmower. Okay. But, but I mean, like, honestly, though, like, I've appreciated that about you and how you lead. And so I think that that is a good picture of, like, if we're, if we're willing to uh, serve when we don't have a spotlight or we're willing to go out of our way to love somebody who's never going to even be able to love us back, then we know, like, we're truly serving people. Mm-hmm. With the well, and, and doesn't us. scripture talk about not lording it over them? Right. And so, like, I think I think there's a huge component of that. That's why I was asking the question. I I think we, we get confused with power and authority because when we get uh, mixed with the culture, mm-hmm. the current culture, power and authority says, do things my way. I'm telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. It's top down. And I think... I mean, Jesus's kingdom is completely upside down. It's not the way we would think it is. Which is why we need grace, right? Because I mean, how difficult is it to be so immersed and saturated in a culture where your success 
in this world, financially, economically, career-wise, is built upon the way the Gentiles lorded over each other, right? And I'm not saying that people are arrogant or jerks when they do that, but it is very much top-down authority structure. Um, and then to be immersed and saturated by that and yet to hear your Savior say, I want you mm -hmm. to operate differently than that. I mean, it's almost like you're trying to live in the tension of two completely different kingdoms and thrive in both of them. And, and I don't know how you can do that really, really well. Um, well, but, let, me, let me ask you my next question because okay. it leads right into that. Okay. So, so when you, how do you discern between genuine acts of grace and submission mm -hmm. and things, acts that are just performative or self-serving? Like, how do we discern? I mean, I know people that are very kind people that serve a lot and they're probably not going where I'm going. Does that make sense? <laughs> I'm trying to say it in the kindest way possible, but... So you're like talking about philanthropy almost versus... A little bit. And we've had that discussion before yeah, here, but yeah. but I mean like, so what's... How do, how do we do that in the church? Like grace and submission versus performance mm. and self-serving. Like, mm. um, I, I think... Let me give a couple of biblical examples because you went, hmm, you know, a little bit. <laughs> uh, like one I think of is when the widow gives like the two mites... And then the rich guy drops the big, you know, yeah. it almost says like he drops a bag of stuff, uh, of gold coins to make everyone see how much he gives to the church. That seems to be performative or self-serving. Right. But yet, is he doing what God's called us to? Yes, he's giving. He's sacrificially giving potentially, mm -hmm. but she's giving it all. And so, so how do we discern that though? Like, I mean- I feel like it's an individual motive type thing because um, if I'm doing something for- the platform or for the notoriety or whatever that is that reveals my heart like the widow she gave what she had and then jesus brought attention so i think mm -hmm. it's it's almost like if others bring attention <laughs> then it's probably a pure motive but if i'm the one doing the thing so that people see me then I, I don't know if that's... A, that's so so what you're it. saying is we don't need to discern that in others because i think many times we point a finger like you're just doing that for performance and we need to internalize it and right. think about it ourselves. Right. right? Would, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think yeah. if we allow other people to call that out in us and, and affirm that, I think that's a healthy place to be. But if we're like, Hey, did you see me do that thing? Or, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Well, let me ask this question. Is, is it possible to not be a follower of Jesus, to not believe in him, mm -hmm. to reject him and yet still exhibit Christ centered servanthood and submission to other people? Is that possible? I mean, are we talking about the whitewashed sepulchers? Because no. I, I, I feel like, I feel like, well, no, but that's what they did. On the outside, it looked yeah, good, yeah. but the inside, it yeah, didn't yeah. look good. And so I, I think that uh, it depends on how you define Christ-centered, you know, servanthood. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is Christ-centered servanthood can only fr come from Christ, can only come from the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, that's... Um, I'm, I'm not so sure. No, no, what I mean yeah. is holistically, if yeah. the Holy Spirit is guiding me, that's the only way it happens. I'm saying the action itself could be the same action that someone that's Christ-centered servanthood is doing, and you could do the same action. Um, well, let me let me take a few steps back. Um, when I was a kid, there was a someone I played soccer with, and I just remember this kid because he was like the most moral kid. Like I felt like dirty around him. I'm like, I don't know. This kid just does everything right. He, I'd, I'd never heard him say anything negative about anybody, just super positive. And then he's like, hey, you should come to my church. And I was like, oh, I know we're not getting into other religions today, but uh, he was Mormon. And so I go to talk to him and I'm like, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And 
Then he starts telling me what he believes about Jesus. I'm like, that's not what the Bible says. It goes back to the discernment. It's like, okay, so was he saved? I, I don't believe he was. I think he was doing very moral things because he was trying to earn his salvation. Mm-hmm. And that was a different God. So I think I think that's what I'm saying is it's it, the action itself has to follow what's in here for it to actually be truly Christ-centered. But you can be deceived. If well, that, is that what you're saying? I mean, no, like, I don't think you'd be deceived. I mean, Jesus says, I have put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. And, and all of that is meant to be a way to point the heart and mind of people uh, to Jesus. So that when they are introduced to Jesus, they're like, okay, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's in here. And so I, I genuinely believe that there are people who are not followers of Jesus, who do subscribe to other religions um, that serve out of, a, out of a sense of genuine desire to help people. And yeah. they're willing to sacrifice and suffer for the sake of other people. You see that all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, how are they not Christians? And then I realized, wait a minute, God put his laws in their life so that those laws can draw them to Jesus. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to in Luke 22 when he says, this table will be fulfilled when I am crucified and resurrected. Mm-hmm. And so there's this nature of, there's this internal desire in each of us um, that wants to be helpful and, and serve well, other people. And when we finally meet Jesus, we're like, okay, that's where this is all fulfilled. And so Jesus has planted something in every one of us, whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist. I'm not saying that they're saved. Well, that's what, what, it, that's what Ecclesiastes says. Right. He said, right. turning in the hearts of men. So we Absolutely. have that desire. Yeah. So you can live out, I think you can live out the same kind of suffering, sacrificial servanthood to other people and not be saved because you didn't find its completion in Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the, the question is not, can Christians serve and now Christians not serve? I mean, evidence has shown us that's not true. Mm-hmm. I think what is true is if you're a believer, you have found Jesus to be the completion and fulfillment and satisfaction of what's inside of you. And if you're not a believer, then you've decided to follow some other God and it's not the satisfaction. I, I don't know. Is that, am I no, speaking I, heresy no, here? No, I, I, you're not speaking Christian universalism, so you're okay. Okay. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought that's where you were going halfway yeah. through and then I was like, no. no way. So I've got a very practical question that is very genuine because I feel like this affects, um, I think every single one of us have multiple people that we're close to that have this as something they struggle with, okay? okay. I would say probably all three of us struggle with this at some point. How do you prioritize the well-being of others without sacrificing your own spiritual growth and personal boundaries? Because if you're trying to grow the kingdom, I mean, the first thing you're going to do is sacrifice your spiritual growth and your personal boundaries. Like if someone calls you and needs something, Mm. well, Eric, I mean, just imagine someone calls you and it's Saturday at 10 o'clock and you're preaching in the morning and they're like, hey, you got to come over. And you're like, in your mind, you're like, well, uh, this is really not an emergency. I don't know why you're calling me on Saturday at 10. And again, uh, my phone's sometimes on do not disturb. So I probably yeah, wouldn't yeah, even yeah. get it, but I'm just yeah. saying like- Well, I, I wouldn't, I w- I'd say you have to have discernment there, but I would actually suggest that, that I call, we've called those things holy inconveniences before or holy interruptions, right? Mm-hmm. I think the idea is that when you, when you let the Holy Spirit lead you into those holy interruptions, it doesn't hurt your spiritual growth. It actually helps build it. Yeah. And so, I mean, it doesn't mean that I have to be uh, a doormat and anytime somebody wants me, I have to be at their beck and call. But if mm-hmm. somebody says at seven o'clock on Saturday night, um, hey, my husband's going to the hospital and I don't know if he's going to make it, 
the last thing I should do is say, I'm sorry, I'm practicing my sermon. And, and that's not you know? necessarily what I was right. saying, but I'm sure. But sure. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I would be at the hospital. Yeah. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> Sometimes you have to embrace that. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, if if a woman calls me up and says, I'm, I just really need to talk to a pastor, Eric, can you come over to my house and talk with me? And by the way, nobody else is here. Then I would say, I'd love to talk with you, but I'm not coming to your house alone with nobody else in your home. Yeah, there's some boundaries, right? Life, yeah. right? So there are boundaries you have to protect while at the same time you can maintain your call to serve other people. And I think you gave, you gave a somewhat sensational thing yeah. because it's like yeah. someone calling and, and sure. end of a life. Yeah. But let's just imagine, okay? Um, I brought up, I think one week with Tom Bernardo, I talked about Eddie Haskell and like leave it to Beaver. The, the person that always shows up at your back door, right? Mm -hmm. let's, let's just imagine there's someone that's always in your space and you're never getting to talk to your spouse. Like you feel like there's no time or space for that. You're always exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, or you're at church like four times a week. And there's some balance to that because I know there's people that want to serve mm -hmm. and their hearts are very genuine, but they don't ever look at their own well-being. They're always looking at the well-being of others and they don't balance that. They sacrifice their spiritual growth and personal boundaries. So David, do you have more thoughts on that? Um, yeah. I mean, like I, I, I wrestle with that um, just in like in leading worship. So like for, for the longest time um, I was in and around worship ministry in various capacities I was in a secular job and I almost felt like it was easier to to read scripture for myself in those uh in those spaces uh when I first started here it was it was almost difficult to like go a week without reading scripture and being like oh that's good for the congregation like mm -hmm. I'm gonna share that passage and then I began like you almost begin to neglect your own spiritual walk because you're looking to build up others or I'm looking to I had a conversation with somebody they're struggling with this I'm reading scripture I'm like wow that hits right where they're at I'm going to send that to them or whatever it is and so I think I've had to learn to to kind of separate the two and compartmentalize in a way of like everything I read like some of it may be for the congregation or maybe for someone that I'm with but it I need to look at my own soul too um, so I think maybe that's kind of what you're talking about is like that balance of like, um, well, it, I mean, it can be ministry. You describe ministry, yeah, but even yeah. in, even to the average lay person, it can be like, well, I'm going to help my neighbor with saying, I'm not going to read my Bible today. Right. And then it turns into this cycle of I'm serving others, mm -hmm. but I haven't even been in the word all right. Week, and I you think know? that's, that's the, that's what I'm kind of getting at. That's how it's played out in my life. But yeah, I mean, I think we can't, or like even having people over for dinner, like, well, we got to clean the house. We got to get things ready. I'm not going to, I don't have time to sit with Jesus today because we're having these people over, which is a good Christian thing to do. And you know, all these things we can almost mm -hmm. kind of just bypass it by serving. Um, but I think our best serving comes from moments in the scripture and moments with uh, pursuing Jesus in our own time. Well, and, and a huge part of that is like, I think of priorities as far as good, better, best. And really, if you're following the Holy Spirit, we've talked about the Holy Spirit actually a lot. I think more than any of our table discussions, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, if you're following the Holy Spirit, I think there's a point where it's like, okay, I'm on track. And there's, there's days you might wake up and you're like, mm, something's off today. I need to make sure that I'm in the word. I need to make sure I'm prioritizing this. Um, and it requires sacrifice. I remember as a kid, when I go to read the Bible, I'm like reading the Bible at night. You guys ever do this as a kid? 
go to read the Bible at night, and I end up like this. Oh, yeah, just fall asleep. You know, fall asleep. I, I woke up one day, and I was like, like literally drool on my Bible, okay, right? <laughs> and I'm like, why am I doing this? And it be, part of it was because it became um, something that I was only doing to check a box, and I started realizing, okay, it's more than that. And so there's a balance of today I serve someone, today I read the word, or whatever happens, as the day goes on, there's times where you start realizing you're out of alignment and you're not ready for the rest of the day. Um, I think there's a one word that I think of when I think of the balance of those two, and the word is busy. Busy is something. Have you ever heard busy under Satan's yoke? That's what it's an acronym for. <laughs> you never heard busy? So busy under Satan's yoke. And the reason I say that is I think a lot of times we fill our space when we don't realize that like in the margins is when God's working the most. In those moments, we're not expecting it, those holy interruptions. Mm -hmm. If we have no time for holy interruptions, when they come, yeah. we're rejecting the very opportunity God's given us right in front of yeah, us. Right. So, I mean, Jesus kind of set the precedent for that. I mean, I mean, he, he was very, very busy, very busy. He could have done ministry all day, every day. Uh, and he was able to respond to those holy interruptions and he did it really well. And then that was part of the pattern of the early church in the book of Acts. But one of the mm -hmm. things that Jesus did do all the time is take time away from the schedule and go be by himself. And so he made sure that his own walk with, with the Lord did not suffer for the sake of other people, mm -hmm. but that was the source out of which he was able to serve so many people. Mm -hmm. So you've heard of the phrase, the starving baker. It's just simply the concept of a baker who makes food for everybody else, but never eats his own food. And so he starves. The problem is once you starve, you don't have the ability of making food for anybody else anymore. And, and I, think, I think you're onto something that if we're going to live this life of, of Christ-centered servanthood for other people, the best thing we can do is keep our own spiritual walk with Jesus strong because now we've got a reservoir of faith to empower the serving. Well, and I, really you have nothing left to give yeah. if you don't do that. Right. So, I mean, it's, yep. I, I think that's very practical and we kind of shared right. a bunch of examples there, but I know as I've been listening to this series and trying to unpack what the mm -hmm. table is meaning, that's like one thing that seems to be a thread through the whole series. So, mm -hmm. um, there's a couple other things as you talked about the kingdom, there's some things that I thought of that, um, I think were fascinating, um, because it seems like, uh, we've touched on it, but really not gone too in depth with what what happens when you try to make your own kingdom. And so let, let me ask you this question. What measures should be taken to ensure that the kingdom is not abused or distorted for personal gain or ideological gain? You know, political maybe, maybe that's another word. Like how do we how do we guard the kingdom? Cause because what it, what it says here is I signed to you as the Father assigned to me a kingdom. So we have been given and conferred this kingdom and we need to guard it. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think, I think it begins where we realize that, that Jesus wasn't necessarily giving or conferring the kingdom onto them individually, mm -hmm. but, but as the pillars of the future church. And so in our context right now, it's not necessarily Jesus has conferred the kingdom onto me, but he's conferred the kingdom onto Brookside and then the universal church. And so in this context, it's the elders need to evaluate if we're going off center of theological truth. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I preach something and, and the elders hear any kind of heresy or inaccuracy, it is their obligation and responsibility to say, hey, Eric, you said this thing, I don't see it supported in scripture anywhere. And mm -hmm. then kind of gently warn me. 
If I continue in that process, if I continue to say things that are extra biblical and make it truth, they need to say, you're just not the right leader for Brookside because they have an obligation uh, to keep Brookside um, in the center of the kingdom. So can I, can I play devil's advocate for a yeah. second? Yeah. But, but I know what I'm thinking. That's my interpretation and that's right. Like the difference is you just describe something as collective. Mm-hmm correct it's not any individual that eric's not deciding what's theologically accurate it's the elders of the church and the church as a whole we're collectively responsible for that so the people watching that are at brookside are responsible just as much as we are oh absolutely yeah so 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 it's not an individual thing Mm -hmm. there's there's not the same hierarchy because it's the kingdom it's different so no no i i really appreciate that david do you have anything to add to that i thought that was really good i mean um so can you, can you, so as I read this, there's a lot of forgiveness and restoration. There's also loose ends because um, what happens to Judas, right? And so how do you reconcile uh, the, the, or let's, let's discuss this, the role of forgiveness and restoration in this story um, and how it should influence our interactions with others. You know, like how we interact and influence others' interactions because we're talking about forgiveness um, we're talking about restoration. That the cross essentially restored us to relationship with God, and so so this this final dinner is just a picture of that. You know, first Christian. Sorry, now I'm going to sound like I'm on a tangent, but basically, <laughs> early Christians were were told they were cannibals because they're eating the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, people clearly didn't understand the Passover meal here, but now that we have years of history to understand that and unpack that. It seems to me that this is a moment of forgiveness and, and reconciliation. And so how do, we, how do we allow that to influence how we interact with others? But I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that part of the Passover meal landed on the disciples until a little bit later on. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it'll land on us until we come to a place where we're in desperate need of forgiveness and we finally receive it. Mm. I mean, think about this. I mean, even though all of the disciples abandoned Jesus when he was in the garden, there were two disciples primarily that had the most pronounced betrayal. Of course, one was Judas, the other was Peter. Um, On the other side of their betrayal, um, if we kept reading the story, we learned that Peter went back to fishing. Judas unfortunately committed suicide. He hung himself. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering that Jesus intended to restore Judas as much as he restored Peter. And if, if Judas had understood or pursued the forgiveness of Jesus, I wonder if that would have stayed his decision to commit suicide long enough so that Jesus could enter his life again and say, Judas, do you love me? Judas, do you love me? Judas, do mm-hmm. you love me? Just like he did Peter. And then say to Judas, feed my sheep and then restore Judas himself. And so I think part of it is us as the, representat- as the representatives of, of that ethic of Jesus, approach people who did blow it and say, as soon as possible, uh, you have to understand the, the forgiving mm-hmm. nature of Jesus before they would do something rash, either abandon the faith altogether or do something worse. I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't okay. really have anything else to add. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah, fine. That was, no, that's that that was really good. Yeah. So you had you had three take-homes, and I kind of want to unpack a little bit of those. Um, the first one was, I admit that I've mismanaged the kingdom and broken the stories in integrity. And you t- discuss that a little bit. And then also, I decide that others' needs are more important than my ambitions. And then I build the kingdom by giving mine away. 
And mm. I loved all three of those. Mm. And so the first one though, I keep thinking about in the context of mismanaging the kingdom and what that looks like, how do we maintain humility, but also still lead and give guidance to others? Because I think some people confuse humility with not speaking up or letting other people share their opinion and just kind of going with it, going with the flow. Um, and sometimes the first person that speaks up, it comes across as pride. Like I know the right answer. So how do we, how do we lead with humility? If, we, if we've mismanaged the kingdom and broken the story's integrity, how do we continue to lead with humility? I think one of the ways that we can do that is through like our testimony in a way. Um, by, by expose, like by being humble in the way and, and saying, exposing, like I, I did this and it mismanaged the kingdom. And mm -hmm. here's what I learned through that process. And I'm still learning this or whatever. I think if we come at it and just say like on the other end, like, oh, I know the answer to this, or I know how to move this forward. People miss out on the, the, the human side of us all. And so I think definitely one of the ways that we can do that is through telling our story and not in a way of like, listen to me, but um, I think people have respect for individuals who can say I've messed up and here's what I'm working towards. I don't know. So, so, so honestly, the humility is more starting with your mistakes rather than with your successes. Yeah. Because I think it, it, it okay. puts you in a position of, of we're on the same playing field. Like, mm -hmm. We, I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm saying I, I've been where you are or I've been in this place and here's what I'm learning um, because we'll never fully know everything there is to know about the kingdom of heaven until we're in heaven. Well, yeah, you know, I, it, it, Eric, before you respond as well, I think one of the things that, that just triggered in my mind is the fact that really God has put people in our lives and I'm saying collectively that are one step further down the road than we are. Mm -hmm. And we have the privilege and opportunity sometimes of being one step further down the road than someone else. Right. And, but I think when we're one step further, it's really one, we've already made the same mistake that they're making right now and we can help them to not make it worse maybe, mm -hmm. or there's something in their life that, that we can speak into because we've experienced it as well. Mm -hmm. And usually, usually those are not the joys of life. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Jesus, he's going to the cross. He, we're not sharing in the joy of the cross. There is joy because of the cross, but not joy in the cross. Like the, the physical humiliation and, and all of that was not like, I mean, angels were singing choruses and everything, but I'm like on, on earth, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? People were mourning. They were in mourning. And so I think, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Jesus led with humility in such a sacrificial and humble way, just by coming alongside um, when he was the God of the universe, the son of the, you know, the, he was the son in the Trinity and he had all this power and yet he humbled himself to the cross and became obedient. And we're just like, well, I, I can't really be humble because I need to build my kingdom over here and whatever my kingdom is, you know? And so I, I really appreciate what you said because the, I think sometimes even starting with, hey, I've made this mistake before and then people are drawn in. Well, how did you get past that mistake? What did the Holy Spirit do that allowed you to move further? And I think that's probably the key 
to leading and also having humility. But oh, it, it has to be because I don't think you can lead um, in a Christ-centered kind of way unless you lead from a state of humility. And the only way you can be humble is if you been humble. That was my message a couple of weeks ago. And so the, think about what is in fact the story of the kingdom. It is not what we have done. It's everything that he has done. And so that's why scripture is mm -hmm. clear that when we are weak, when we have failed, then he is strong. And so the only way that you can actually keep mm -hmm. the integrity of the story intact is when you're honest about how you are broken, mm -hmm. when you're honest about how you have failed, because mm -hmm. on the other side of that failure, then you can reveal God's strength and his goodness and Jesus' love. And that's really the integrity of the story that the world needs to know. And so I'm not suggesting, I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans. I mean, should we should we sin even more so that grace might abound? He's like, absolutely not. But when we're honest with our failure, then all of a sudden Jesus' grace can be more pronounced. And I think that's why I love to, I brought in the Luke 15 story, the mm -hmm. prodigal son. I don't think the prodigal son became a genuine son until after he blew it so badly. Because after he blew it so badly, that's when he really appreciated the father's grace. Mm -hmm. um, and when the father put that ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet and the cloak around his back, mm -hmm. I think that's the first time he, he understood what it actually meant to be a son. Not because of what he did, but because of the father's incredible expression of grace and love. Yeah. David, you got, you got anything to add after that? That was, uh, that was the cherry on top of the Sunday, as far as I'm concerned <laughs> right there. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for being with us this week uh, at Church Unscripted. We are so glad that you've been watching this with us in this series, um, in the table series. And um, if you get the opportunity, please subscribe, hit the notification bell so you know when the episode goes online, like it, leave comments for questions for next week or the following weeks, um, questions that you might have. Um, if you've been following along with us for a extended period of time, we're just excited. We're at how many episodes? Like a million episodes, I feel like. Probably I'm just close kidding. To I'm it, kidding. Yeah. I'm, it's a million. <laughs> so um, we're excited that we've been, been doing it for this long and we're excited that you're here with us. So we'll see you next week. 